Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. And we've been going down the American Film Institute's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of, purportedly, the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We're up to number 14 on the list. Which means that on this episode, we'll be talking about John Williams' score to the 1982 childhood fantasy classic, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. E.T., The Extraterrestrial, was written by Melissa Matheson, was produced by Kathleen Kennedy and Steven Spielberg, and it was directed by Steven Spielberg. Andy, what's it like to watch E.T.? Well, John, everyone has already seen E.T., but (laughs) for those who haven't and are offended that I just said that, E.T. is Steven Spielberg's signature film of childhood about an alien stranded on Earth and the boy who befriends him. The movie stars Henry Thomas as that boy, Elliot, Dee Wallace as his mother, Mary, Robert McNaughton as his brother, Michael, Drew Barrymore as his sister, Gertie, and Peter Coyote as a government agent who's only known as Keys. The movie puts us into the world of these suburban children as they try to help their alien visitor to return home while keeping him secret from the adults. And at the center of the story is the deep and even supernatural emotional bond that forms between E.T. and Elliot. Good enough? Good enough. Andy, I know you don't drive as much as I do, but uh, do you ever play your iPhone in a car? I have played my iPhone in a car, sure. Well, when I plug my iPhone into the little USB dongle in my car, it automatically starts playing from my music library that's on the phone. Mm. And for some reason, the rule that it follows when it does this is on its own, it will play the track that is alphabetically first out of all of the songs that are stored on the phone. Mm -hmm. And for a few years, the track title that was alphabetically first among all of the music that I had was a track in the E.T. soundtrack called Abandoned and Pursued, which I know is an alternate track, but it's essentially the same music as the opening scene when the guys are chasing E.T. and the spaceship leaves him behind. That's the name of the like the album special version that he did for the original album, right? Yeah, that's right. But it's the music from there. Yeah. That would just come up and start playing basically every time I plug my phone into the car. And I would usually let it play through, (laughs) even though, you know, you kind of get sick of it. This kind of habitual thing. I would listen to it every time because, you know, it's real good. Yeah, it's a good track. I had a sort of nostalgic moment as I was watching the movie and that music came up. I was like, oh, yeah, I used to hear that all the time whenever I got in my car. Since then, uh, of course, as I'm sure is true for many people nowadays, the alphabetically first track on my phone is now Aaron Burr, Sir, from Hamilton. You haven't gotten into that aardvark musical yet, but you're going (laughs) to love it. So we should talk about that piece of music. We should talk about that theme. We should talk about all the themes. But first, uh, let's just lay it out there. John, what do you think of this score? 
I mean, uh, I think it's great. <laughs> uh, don't you think it's great? I think it's great. Yeah, I absolutely think it's great. I mean, it's one of the scores I've spent the most time with because it's been great since I was a little kid. Yeah. It was subconsciously great when I was just a kid and watched this movie over and over. And then when I started getting into film scores, you know, in high school and college, it was great to focus on attentively and it still works and it's still got a lot to offer. And yeah, it's just really rewarding. Yeah, something that I've spoken about a couple of times on this podcast, probably more than a couple of times, is the idea of the music and the picture, the association between them being transcendent, that these disparate art forms can meld together and create an experience for the audience that is much, much, much greater than the sum of the parts. You know, when we sort of at the beginning laid out the criteria of what we were looking for in a great score, I said, I really want something that gives you that association, that gives you that transcendent feeling. I don't know how we're going to get much better for a transcendent experience that the music is achieving in conjunction with the picture. I don't know how we're going to get much better than Elliot flying across the moon on his bicycle. It's a breathtaking moment. It's an immensely wonderful and memorable moment. And I think it's memorable because the music is doing so much work to infuse it with feeling. Yeah. I bet that if there was not such a surpassingly great melody playing for the shot of Elliot's silhouette flying across the moon on his bike, that would not be the you know logo for Amblin Entertainment. <laughs> the fact that it's such a memorable, iconic thing that has lived on in culture is absolutely chalk it up to John Williams here. And so in this project in which we're celebrating what music can do, uh, man, this is, this is a real good example of what music can do. Yeah, but I'd go even beyond, not just in a couple of iconic images or sequences, but this whole movie to me is the transcendent amalgam that you talk about. Sure. Because I had the experience this time, you know, I've seen the movie many times before. I've certainly listened to the music many times before while envisioning the movie, essentially. And when I went to watch it this time, thinking, oh, well, we're going to talk about it on the podcast. So let me screw some analytical lenses into my classes here and just sort of try and see what's going on step by step for the listeners andy does not in fact wear glasses <laughs> they can imagine some glasses if they want to i didn't say they couldn't imagine them i might wear glasses you don't know you don't know the point is i'm squinting and evaluating with different eyewear <laughs> different eyewear anyway i was wearing these goggles of analysis and <laughs> Essentially, I was trying to imagine the movie without the music. And I don't just mean kind of in the raw sense of, well, what would this play like if you took this out? Yeah. There's a jokey video on YouTube that I bet people have seen where someone has just put in lame sound effects for the final scene. This is E.T. walking up the ramp to the spaceship. It makes its point, but it's also kind of a joke. I mean, that's not how any movie would ever have the Foley be done. But I was just, I was watching like, what do we have in this movie apart from this music? And was sort of taken aback to feel like, well, it's kind of like a after school special about <laughs> kids of divorce who escape into a fantasy. Yeah, that's a nice subject, but it just seems very small. seems very kind of yeah. TV. 
And that movie that I was kind of shocked contemplating absolutely does not exist because the idea that this movie is going to be sustained by music is built in. It is part of the conception of it. It's part of the way it's directed. I don't remember if it was Williams or someone else, but I remember hearing someone saying that Spielberg is notable for leaving space for the music to carry the weight, Mm -hmm. directing in a way that knows there will be music here and the music will make it into what it means to be. There are so many shots in this movie, so many scenes in this movie that exist absolutely with the intention to be equal partners with music Mm -hmm. that hadn't been written yet when they were shot, but the intention for it to be written and to be its equal partner is baked in originally. Yeah, and the music plays loud. The music is really front and center. And I had a similar thought watching it this time, specifically during the climactic bike chase at the end of the movie, when the kids are running away from all the government agents in their cars and taking E.T. to meet his spaceship. Where are we going? To the forest! This bike chase is just thrilling. It's electric. It feels so special and wonderful and exciting and adventurous and climactic. You know, pile as many words as you want in there. I love it so much. And yeah, I had the same thought watching it that, sure, this is well shot. And yeah, look at the bikes, you know, making jumps over the little hills. uh, That's cool. But yeah, without the music in there electrifying it, It's pretty ordinary looking. It's not much of an action sequence. It's not much of a chase sequence. And it doesn't need to be. I'm not criticizing the direction of it. But yeah, what you're looking at is nowhere near the intensity level of what the music is making you feel. But they live together. And that's part of, I think, the brilliance of the movie. It's about the emotions of a child, which are Mm -hmm. outsized. You know, the obvious precursor in our series here for this score is To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, I was wondering when we were going to get to that. We should mention it. Yeah, we said on that episode, it plays the adventures of a child with actual adventure music. Right. And this is like that strategy maximally done. It's the fullest romantic investment in things that, yes, look like actual children's adventures on screen. Although the kids riding the bikes look like they're about six feet tall when they're doing the stunts. (laughs) Well, it definitely is, you know, its fullest statement, yeah, during the bike chase, which that moment when it cuts to the five kids in the V formation on the bikes and these fast turns, it's just so effervescent and exciting, yeah, electrifying. And you know what I think it's telling you? Not only is it conveying a child's sense of adventure, but I think it's also really telegraphing they're going to get away, you know, they win. The music is so cheerful. It's exciting, but it's cheerfully excited. And I think the music is intentionally just letting you have fun with it. You watch the whole thing with a smile on your face because you're not worried that the guys are going to get them. The music says, don't worry, they get away. They make it. They get E.T. to where they're taking him. So you just get to have fun with it. The dramatic structure of the movie is interesting in that the climax is essentially E.T. dying and then coming back to life. And then there's the whole final sequence, which is, like you're saying, kind of celebratory. It's like, (laughs) we're done, and there are threats. You know, they're chasing after them with guns. Of course, in 2002, when they re-released it, Steven Spielberg thought he needed to take out the guns. Then he thought, I'm sorry, I took out the guns. He put the guns (laughs) back in. But the reason it was so silly that he took out the guns for that moment there was because the guns were never threatening. I mean, 
you know, sort of like one page of score that's Elliot going, oh my God, there's some guys with rifles there. And the chord that's played is, there's tension in it, but it's really like a big setup chord for the triumphant statement of the flying theme. Oh, sure, yeah. It's really just preparatory. It mm-hmm. doesn't stop the action. The momentum never stops. No, not at all. There's such momentum, there's no stopping it. And yeah, to design a movie to end kind of with a big coda, which is what it all is. It's a big musical, you know, we made it and now we get to run some victory laps. <laughs> it's such a musical conception of how a movie is going to work. Yeah, and... Not only is this music an all-time melody that we're hearing and just all-time work in the fully realized complexity of everything that an orchestra can do, but it's incredible how he's able to do that, but have it be really, really tightly scored to picture at the same time. You know, it's sensitive to the cuts. It's sensitive to the imagined tension because, yeah, it's a celebratory victory lap. And like I said, you know, it's telling you that the kids are going to make it. But within that, it's also playing the moves of the chase. Oh, no, they're over here. Oh, no, the car's behind him. Now they escape over here. And then they're driving down these little hills by the side of the road. And they make these cool jumps over the hills. And the music makes these jumps with them. There are these string runs and wind runs that go... But it's just so expertly woven into the texture of the music... It doesn't stick out to you. It doesn't feel like Mickey Mousing. Even though it is actually Mickey Mousing them because it goes that follows the jump that they make on their bikes. But it's contextualized. It's fully incorporated and justified in what the rest of the music is doing. That action is part of the same tapestry. It's woven in. Yeah, I think the reason that that feels good and valid and right and not against the grain is because the grain at that point is balletic, is Mm dance-like. That it's satisfying that they go over the bump, that it's satisfying that the bikes are doing these jumps and things, is the game at that point. That's what we're there for. So it feels absolutely dignified as long as you're on board. Mm -hmm. The risk that this whole movie takes is if you are not being drawn along by this music the whole thing seems uh indulgent or sentimental these are not my criticisms but you know people who don't like spielberg the complaint is often it's so sentimental it's so sugary and sweet and whatever yeah good thing i am being drawn along by them yeah essentially what they're saying is i wasn't with the music and that's just this grand scale risk that the whole movie is predicated on You're going to be in a musical frame of mind. You're going to be experiencing all of this musically, and then it'll make sense to you. Mm -hmm. It does to me. It works for me. Yeah, it it definitely works for me too. Okay, so now I think we should start talking about some of the themes. Yeah. Uh, And why don't we start with the theme that we heard in Abandoned and Pursued earlier. That's clearly a theme that's associated with the government agents. These mysterious, sort of faceless people. Keys, his name is. Yeah. Oh, there he is. I brought an audio aid. We have a special guest. <laughs> yeah. I, I brought an audio aid just because, uh, boy, they really, uh, they really foleyed the crap out of those keys. Yeah. You see him like 50 feet away, and he's not even moving very much, and... 
Like that guy has the world's loudest keys. That's why they hired him, I think. <laughs> yeah. What are they even keys to? Like, why would that guy carry keys all the time? Uh, everyone else's houses, apparently. Apparently, that's right. Because <laughs> they've bugged everybody's house on the block? Is that what we're to understand? No, they have some kind of magic microphone that can listen to suburban scenes from 100 feet away. <laughs> right, through walls. To, through the wall, yeah. trying to get through the evening. That's all I want to do. But to make some your garlic bread, it's like, oh, Anyway, that that gets played, I think, pretty much every time those guys are on the screen. That kind of really closely hammered home association, um, I thought that was interesting. Because the other themes that are in the movie don't really get hammered to exactly specific things. That's right. You know, you hear them in a lot of different settings. Yeah, there's a lot of different themes in this movie, and you can start to say what their themes for, but after a point it runs out, he uses them more generally than that, mm -hmm. which I think is a great strength of this score. It has so much material, and it's so intuitive kind of about how it uses it, and yet you never get lost in it. Do you want to sort of catalog the themes? Yeah, let's go through the themes. I think the last time we did this was for Ben-Hur, which is a gigantic epic with all these different plot elements. This is a very basically simple story and a contained movie, and yet it has all of this thematic material. I think it's really part of the experience of the movie that you're entering like a whole musical catalog. A whole musical family, family that occupies this space. Yeah, well, I was going to say that I think all the themes intentionally have a kind of familial relationship. Aren't they all based on an ascending fifth? Yeah. The key interval, and I think this is true of a lot of the themes that Williams wrote for a lot of different movies, especially around this time, from Star Wars through to you know the early mid-80s, a lot of his melodies are particularly characterized by their opening intervals which are the distance between the first two notes that you hear. You know, in Star Wars, the interval of the fifth is the key interval for the main theme, which is gets sort of used for Luke's theme. And then a different interval, an ascending sixth, is keyed to Princess Leia. And it's her theme. And then in the next movie, that same interval turns into the Han and Leia love theme. Also, that same opening sixth is the opening interval for Marion's theme in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, he has this trick of picking an opening interval and then, like, spinning some stuff out from it. I think that's what he's done here, and he's specifically chosen the same opening interval and then sort of spun it in different directions from there. There's always a little turn or a fall or a, a little contour that follows that fifth, and they're all different, but they're all related because of that. Yeah, there's an organic interrelationship mm -hmm. among these themes. They're beautifully distinct from each other. They don't all blend together. They each have an identity, but you feel this through line. Okay, so let's play them. The first one you hear at the very beginning of the movie, like a kind of once upon a time, the very first, actually the very first thing you hear is kind of spooky, rubbing a gong, eerie, atmospheric noises under the main titles. Yeah, this ambient stuff for the main titles, right. It's sort of an odd choice to let the main titles play without any, you know, real notes happening, just this weird ambience. Yeah, well, I think they had a very strong idea for this 
introduction to the world of the movie, like I said, it's like once upon a time, it's like opening the curtains and you see the uh-huh. starry sky. I can imagine them thinking, this is how we're entering and playing some tunes before that will only diminish it. So let's just create a kind of empty space in which something scary could happen, uh, something wonderful you don't know. Right. It's like a blank canvas. Uh. And also it's a little bit like out in the middle of the night, things are going to be shadowy for a long time. You don't see E.T. and find out mm-hmm. just how benign he is until later in the movie. So yeah, it's kind of how you would feel a kid might feel if they went out into the woods at night. Mm-hmm. Spooky sounds. But anyway, the first real music that we hear is this call motif or the E.T. motif or the magic motif or the Mm -hmm. outer space motif or hard to say exactly what one word would sum up its use here. This is the little theme that we played back in the episode on To Kill a Mockingbird when we were talking about using the Lydian fourth. The next note that it goes to after that opening fifth is it goes down from the fifth to the sharp four. Which is that Lydian feel, which gives it that sense of magic and wonder Mm -hmm. that we were talking about. It ends up being the last thing you hear in the movie Uh when the spaceship takes off and, you know, E.T. is no longer on screen. We're seeing all of the humans left behind. This theme, whatever it has meant, is where we end. Yeah, so the first thing we hear is this theme, and uh, what are some other places where we hear it other than the very end of the movie? Well, when Elliot thinks that there might be a goblin outside in his yard uh, before he meets E.T. properly, we see him looking out his kitchen window. When he's doing the dishes, you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, when he's doing the dishes, he looks out the window and sort of imagines what's out there. Uh, we hear it then, and yeah, it definitely has a what-could-be-out-there wondering feel to it. Yeah, so that's the Lydian one, and it's the hopeful, yearning, searching mm-hmm. magic one. Then there's, of course, the E.T. theme, the main theme, the flying theme. Right. Which has the same contour, but is not in Lydian. So, yes, that starts with that same fifth, and then it goes down to the four note, but not the sharp four note, the regular major four note. So, not in Lydian. I also wanted to say that the kind of sinister sounding government agent theme also has a fifth in it. It's a little more hidden, but... The bum 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 yeah. Yeah, it goes up from that repeated note, then the next thing that happens is again a fifth above it. Okay, and then another theme that we encounter is the one, I guess you'd call it a theme for the bond between E.T. and Elliot? Yeah, the love theme. Sure. The E.T. and me theme, it's called on the album. Mm-hmm. It's 
So this seems like a beautiful inspiration to me that three of these other themes, at least, start with a rising fifth, one to five. Right. And this starts with a rising fifth, three to seven. It's a fifth between two different notes in the scale, but it's the same interval between them. And it's like it takes the spirit of the rising fifth that you hear throughout all the other material and kind of transfers it into a more tender, sentimental, you know. It's like these tones higher, further from the root. There's just something more delicate and emotionally subtle Mm -hmm. about them. And it's such a simple way of getting two different themes to kind of occupy different emotional territory, but be identified with each other. There's sort of the extrovert version of the fifth and the introvert version of the fifth here. Hmm, yeah. Delicacy, as you say, I think is so important to it. It's first played on the harp. In fact, I think it's most often played on the harp, this beautiful harp solo. And again, it's the same sort of broadly defined contour of the theme. It's an ascending fifth up and then a turn. A little tail to it that goes in one direction or another. You know, that sort of describes all of these themes that we're talking about. And then there's the two figures that are often found near each other that sort of are associated with the bicycles or with the kids' Mm -hmm. world. But again, the associations here are loose and he finds interesting ways to go beyond the associations. But that's sort of the initial association. There's this fanfare. Another fifth. And then there's the moving theme that is its companion. That one to me is maybe the most interesting piece of material in this movie because it is used like a theme. It's really played in full. You get to know it. It's played as melodic, but it doesn't have a normal song-like form to it. It's like a propulsive piece of material. It moves from place to place in a way that drives the emotions or the action forward, but it's also used as a theme. You know, the first time you hear this theme, one of my favorite cues in the movie, and often my favorite cues are the earliest cues because they're the ones that kind of set the tone and tell you how it's going to work. And this cue from very early in the movie, when Elliot rides his bicycle into the woods, searching for E.T. and leaving the Reese's Pieces on the ground, you hear this theme, and it's basically his riding his bicycle, going off on his own quest to find the goblin. It has these very potent harmonic moves in it. And these big leaps. This huge major seventh leap. That's a lot of emotional force and content. It's just sort of laid in like this is what a child's world is. This is what Elliot's life is like. Mm -hmm. I think that piece of material brings a sense of emotional depth to this movie by being so unpat. It doesn't resolve. It doesn't have a... Yeah, it goes somewhere. It has a long-term trajectory. It doesn't come back to where it started. I was actually a little bit surprised on this time that I watched the movie at how forceful that cue is. I mean, that's like my favorite thing in (laughs) the whole score is those two bars where he changes the rhythm. We're seeing Elliot ride his bicycle out of the house down the driveway. And then there's a big landscape shot where you see what the whole suburb looks like. 
it's this rhythmically punchy music. And for this one little shot where it sort of cuts to a, like a long lens effect of him dipping over the horizon on his bike, you hear these chords, these just chomping chords. The association there is so unexpected and it's like it matches the visual it matches the stylishness of the visual and spielberg's arresting camera style but what it has to do with the emotional life of elliot and the suburban world we're being introduced to is not obvious or immediate and as a viewer i feel like something lights up for me Uh uh-huh yeah it sort of jolts you into the adventure of it yeah and then this shot of the suburban landscape it pulls back and back and the music gets more and more strident and intense And it again, it just kind of matches the visual and the sense of import, but it doesn't have an obvious pat connection to the storytelling. And that's such a risky thing to do. You could easily make a complete non sequitur piece of music and it would be meaningless. But this, this just crystallizes so perfectly into something. It just excites me every time. I feel like, huh. you know, my mind starts searching for some kind of subconscious subterranean reason why it feels this way why does that mean the suburbs why does that mean elliot on his bicycle and it feels worth investigating it and this is really the first cue in elliot's world there's a whole intersection where et runs from keys and the other scientists oh here he is there he comes but this is the first cue of sort of what it feels like to be elliot I liked when you said it was a crystallizing because what it follows is the whole sequence when they first encounter each other and they both scream and run away. It could be played as a sort of horror movie. You know, we don't know, like you say, that E.T. is benign yet. And there's no music for any of that. There very well could have been. But I thought it was a very good decision not to because, yeah, we don't want to jump to any emotional conclusions about what this relationship is going to be, what this encounter means. You know, it's not foreshadowing anything. And then after that encounter, he gets on his bike and tries to go look for him. That's when it means something. Elliot takes that experience of coming across E.T. for the first time, and he processes it by riding off and doing this adventurous detective work on his own. So this is sort of the answer to that. So a final bit of material that doesn't start with a fifth, but it kind of starts with a not quite fifth. I think it starts with a tritone most of the times you hear it, is the spooky, uh uh-oh, alien motif. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, sure, sure, sure. This is like near atonal. It's not a 12-tone figure. He's not really even strict about which tones it is, but it always has the same contour. But he manages to use it as a recognizable piece of material because he just plays it over and over. And in fact, he has this one cue, the one where Elliot is laying out in the yard waiting for E.T. and the E.T. comes out of the shadows and mm-hmm. drops the Reese's Pieces in his hands. And this is just a masterful piece of scoring. It's like someone said, you can only play this one sort of meaningless assortment of notes over and over. That's the only thing you can do to accompany this (laughs) whole scene. And he does, and it's perfect. He plays it, I don't know, seven times or something. It varies a little bit. But it's mostly just like the textures shift underneath it, the chords move around a little bit, and each time it comes back it means something a little different, but it's this kind of 
spooky, unsettled piece of material. And it does begin with a rising interval, but it, it's not quite a fifth because it's not quite... It hasn't quite found its identity yet. It's kind of a foreboding. Yeah, well, that piece in the score is kind of about finding identity. You know, in addition to it being compositionally excellent, the emotional mapping that he does here is he threads such a needle. <laughs> is that, can you say that? It's so needle threading in that it's got to be apprehensive because we don't know what this space alien creature is yet. You know, obviously Elliot is scared. But we don't want to be too scared because... It's just E.T., yeah. We can't trick the audience. We can't just tell lies to the audience. Right. It doesn't tell you that this could be a scary monster. But it's just enough of... Maybe it's a maybe it's a scary monster. It's tense, but the wonder comes first. And then at the end of the queue, he drops the Reese's Pieces on the blanket, and you get the same motif now on a celeste. Now it's a little comical. Right. Still unresolved, but it puts the right amount of a button on the scene, not too much. Yeah, it's a tour de force, and this strategy of repeating this quizzical little figure over and over is perfect. It's like the suspense of, just tell me what's going on, just is this good or bad, just tell me, right. and we're not going to get there. We're just going to stick with this theme, and it's going to be colored. It's just going to receive different shadings. It's easy to watch a scene like that and think, well, yeah, this is the only way it could possibly be, Right. but the workmanship is so finely calibrated there. You know, the music, where it goes from there, as now Elliot lures E.T. into his room, you know, up the stairs of the house, we hear the Lydian magic E.T. music over some tremolo strings, and it feels already fun and exciting, you know, like I'm making a new friend. He weaves this sort of comedy of it in so delicately, so thoughtfully, now there's pizzicatos, which give it this little fun energy. He has turned the trick so quickly from apprehension and what is out there to I am making a special new friend, which is somewhat comical and fun. Okay, but I wanted to go back to the comparison to To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, yeah. That definitely needs to be acknowledged for a few reasons. We've already spoken about how the scale that the melodic material is based on has a kinship with the To Kill a Mockingbird melody. And then, yes, the technique of giving seriousness and weight to the child's sense of adventure is definitely an important move that is descended from To Kill a Mockingbird. But I think it's a little different here. He does it differently. He doesn't do that every time. You know, for example, the scene where E.T. and Elliot are sort of first meeting each other in Elliot's room and Elliot showing him all his toys. That is this very, very touching statement of the E.T. and Elliot Bond theme. Coke. See, we drink it. It's a, it's a drink. You know, food. These are toys. These are little men. This is Greedo. And then this is Hammerhead. I feel like this is not giving us Elliot's perspective. 
because he's showing him all of his Star Wars toys. You know, he makes them fight each other and stuff. And if it was actually playing Elliot's perspective, you know, it might follow the different toys that he's presenting. You could imagine if you applied the Elmer Bernstein technique of sort of flightily jumping from one musical idea to the next to follow the different toys he's showing to E.T. But no, he's playing through it. He's playing sort of on top of everything. And I think it gives a broader perspective. I think this is not putting us in a child's mindset. It's characterizing the relationship between them. It's characterizing the sweetness and the bond between them. And it's doing so from an outside perspective. We're looking at them with warmth and sweetness. And that's what the music is doing for us here, rather than getting into what Elliot is thinking, even though the musical material is definitely influenced by the soundscape of To Kill a Mockingbird, these very delicate sounds, these sort of childlike sounds of harp and high piano and bells and things like that. Well, I think that it's sort of a question of what is meant by perspective. It certainly is not following Eliot's thought processes, but that music to me, which really casts a spell every time I hear it, it really... Oh yeah, it is spellbinding. And the spell of it does have to do to me not just with the nostalgia for childhood, but with the feelings that I had in childhood. And I know watching this movie as a child... I think part of the reason it's such a classic and struck such a chord is that children recognize their world in it. And I feel like there's something about the spooky, dreamy warmth of that music that Mm -hmm. is familiar. It's not just sort of adults looking in and going, aren't children adorable? But it's sort of how it feels to feel loving, childlike loving feelings. Well, it's a great scene. And it's such a funny, yeah, of course, this is what a kid would do if a space alien landed in his yard he would take him into his room and show him his toys such a great idea for a scene yeah i think there are many places in this score like you said he plays through it and that gives depth to the kind of surface comedy and then there's other moments where he plays the surface comedy like that moment you were mentioning when et first gets into the house because what's going on is potentially strange and it kind of gives you permission to take pleasure in it And I think his instincts for what to play through, the choices about which layer of the drama, which aspect of the emotions to play are really good. Yeah, absolutely. A standout example uh, is late in the movie when E.T. is dying, is under medical care, but they're losing him. Medical care? Well, he's got these doctors. The doctors are all good people. They take off their masks. They're doing their best. That's true. Yeah. Something that I appreciated watching the movie this time is that these people that we spent the whole movie being apprehensive about, they feel like the bad guys. They kind of get the bad guy music and they're spooky and they come into the house in spacesuits and it's scary, but then they all turn out to not be bad guys. And Keyes turns out to be a really kind of sweet guy who has the best at heart. Yeah, he's sort of a father figure at the very end, or potentially. At the very end, yeah. Did you see that in the score? It looks like maybe Williams got told that the character's name was Keyes, because that's how he's credited. We never hear any other name for him. But it's spelled in the score K-E-Y-E-S, like it would be if it was somebody's actual name. Seems to have sort of missed the point that it's just he's being referred to by his uh, trademark. Yes, probably. (laughs) Anyway, I'm sorry. So anyway, in that scene where E.T. is dying, they play E.T.'s theme in major sentimentally. Yeah. E.T., stay with me. 
They play a loving, positive major version of the theme over this kind of mm-hmm. tragic scene. Right. And it pays off so well. It's so inspired. It brings in emotions that it's valuable to have brought in. The ones about the tragedy that's on screen, like, you know, the kid is pleading with him. The doctors are saying all this grim stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of medical jargon being thrown around every which way. And the music plays love. It just reminds you that love is at stake here. Converting back to normal sinus rhythm. They're separating. Yes, definitely separating. What does that mean? The boy's coming back. We're losing E.T. Yeah, it's all smooth and sweet. Yeah, it's just playing the warmth. It's not playing against it. It's just playing an undercurrent that is not mm-hmm. in the visual. And then that turns out to be the same cue that when Michael gets in the closet, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that's the moment that gets me every time in this movie. He's the older sibling. He's kind of aging out of playing with toys and hiding in the closet. And when this sad thing is going on, he kind of curls up among all of the things of childhood. And then the camera starts to pull back and John Williams comes in with this celeste suddenly playing the second half of the love theme. It's just like all of these layers of emotion click in there that don't have to do with what's going on in the story. Because after that, it cuts back, you know, oh, E.T. is dying on the table. And then we sort of snap back to attending to the moment to moment progress of the plot. But during that one cue, there's a kind of gesturing toward all of these other under layers of the emotions that are sustaining this whole story. And uh, yeah, I feel like it's inspired beyond. I mean, John Williams does great work in so many movies, but there's something boldly willing to sort of reach off to the side in some places here that you don't even notice that it's off to the side. It seems necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everything he does seems necessary. But to step back and consider, he has to go through and make these decisions that this is happening, but I'm going to underscore this particular emotion. I want it to feel this way here. It's just so impressive and sensitive to the story. Well, in relation to that, I warned you I was going to talk about this, and that's the connection in which I want to talk about it. It is known what the temp score was to various scenes of this movie. I actually found a quote from Spielberg to substantiate this in an interview he did soon after the movie, talking about his film editor, Carol Littleton, and he says, She selected some fantastic music for our temp tracks to cut to. She found some Shostakovich, which she cut the first movement of the film, The Chase in the Forest, and Howard Hansen's Romantic Symphony, which we paced the final goodbye scene to and even some of the soundtrack from Hal Ashby's film being there, some of that wonderful music by Johnny Mandel. So these are decisions about what kind of musical pacing and musical feel will make the movie hang together that are made by the editor prior to the composer coming in. Because as I said, this is a movie conceived to have music sustaining it. I completely understand they couldn't cut it without something there. Well, the phenomenon of a temp track, of a temp score, is very commonplace and definitely underscores the fact that in order to make a movie, in order to figure out what you're doing, what you're saying with the movie, you need music. 
the composer hasn't gotten the film yet. The composer is usually one of the last people to see the film because it needs to be edited before the composer can write to it because it depends crucially on the timing. So the editing has to happen first. And yet the editing needs to have some kind of sense of music to work from. So they have to put some placeholder in. It's a placeholder, but it's also sort of an experimentation on what points of view, what perspectives, what emotions the music can contribute to the picture. It's a tricky thing, a temp score. Some directors, there's a phenomenon called being temp blind, which refers to when a director becomes overly attached to the temp score because he's heard it so many times and makes the association and feels like that music that has been part of the working process has to be there. And that can be something that's difficult for a composer to overcome. Some composers don't want to hear the temp score. Some composers do. So... It seems to me that this movie, particularly beyond many other movies, is this construction of music wedded to the image. And so the temp score and the edit that was made from it are going to be symbiotic in a way that is harder to fiddle with than something where we just kind of picked something that had a beat so we have a basic sense of the tempo, but now there's going to be something really different in there. So you were just saying, you know, John Williams had to make these decisions about this is the emotion that we need at this point. And I think it's important to acknowledge that Carol Littleton, the editor, had a big hand in, for example, the final scene, which they say here was tempt with Howard Hansen's Symphony No. 2, the Romantic Symphony, the nickname Howard Hansen gave it. Howard Hansen is an American composer from the first half of the 20th century. Right. He actually, I think, had just died the previous year or the year they were making E.T. I think this piece was written in the 30s, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably his best known piece. It was on various records. It's actually known to moviegoers because it is kind of out of the blue played as the ending of Alien, the movie Alien, after Sigourney Weaver kills the alien. Oh, yeah. I forgot that. Suddenly we start hearing some music that's not from the score of Alien. It's Romantic Symphony by Howard Hansen. Which might be why the editor knew it. In any case, they cut the ending of E.T. to this piece of music. And I think that anyone who's familiar with it will hear that some of the sort of spiritual content, the textural content, the kind of stylistic world that you go to at the end, and indeed some of the specific harmonic moves have been modeled on this piece of music because the construction of the scene, the way the scene worked, had itself been modeled on this piece of music and the kind of surgery to absolutely replace that piece of music with a really different one is pointless in a way. And especially this ending, which if you summarize to someone what happens at the end of this movie, like, well, the alien's family comes and the alien gets back on its ship and it goes away. It's not clear at all what that means. The music really is there to tell you what it means. So anyway, John Williams has expertly, beautifully composed this composition that is the final scene from E.T. Some of the choices, you know, you talk sometimes about the difference between a soundtrack score that wasn't written to picture and a score score that was written to picture. Some of the choices that place us in the emotions we have at the end there were sort of soundtrack choices made by an editor, and then his work was to write it to picture. Right. Whereas the sort of emotional choice-making work was in some ways handed to him. Like, these emotional choices have been made. Can you 
keep us there. Yeah, that's a very good point. I'm glad that you're bringing that to the fore because it definitely deserves to be acknowledged that, in fact, yes, many of these emotional decisions are not made by the composer alone. They're made by the composer in conjunction with, obviously, with the director and very often, yes, with the editor and other people in the post-production world. But temp music is a funny thing, man. When you come to score something, it's sort of like solving a puzzle. You have to think of music that relates to what you're looking at, that conveys a certain emotion, but it has to fit in a certain specific time. It has to match up with specific moments in time, but it still has to get across what it needs to get across. And to write music that does that is like solving a puzzle. So I said that a lot of composers don't want to hear the temp score because it's like the first thing that they get is, well, here is a different solution to the puzzle. And now you have to make up a different one. Right. It's very difficult. And, you know, I've had that experience many times, of course, of hearing the temp music. And I find it useful personally because you can distill a lot of direction from it. It tells me what, you know, my assignment is essentially. But it's still tricky to know how exactly to position yourself in relation to it. You know, how much of it to copy or how closely to make what you're doing similar. Because obviously, if they want it to sound like that, they want it to sound like that. So it should sound something like that. But I have not had the experience, which I'm sure Williams has all the time. In fact, you mentioned it in the previous episode when we were talking about Star Wars The Last Jedi, that not only was he given a temp score, but he was given a temp score with his own music. I mean, it must be... Yeah, it messes with your head. It messes with your head because not only here is a solution to this puzzle that you have to now solve, but here is a solution that you already made for something else. And how do you make something that sounds like yourself but do a new thing? It's a very difficult creative thing because as much as this is an art writing music, it's very much a craft when you're doing it for film. You know, you wouldn't go up to a painter and say, paint me this painting. (laughs) Like, here's the Mona Lisa, paint me one of these. You know, but that's what happens to composers all the time. They get handed other pieces of music, often really great pieces of music, you know, the equivalent of a Mona Lisa of music and say, okay, now do one of these. Right. So the reason I initially said I think it's important to talk about this is it seems to me that Williams was clearly given this temp score and that part of his way of responding to it was to do deliberate homage to it because he Mm -hmm. takes things out of it that there's really no practical reason to take out of it that you can hear the direct connection like when you hear them riding the bicycles at the beginning of the bicycle chase... This figure is taken pretty clearly from the beginning of the third movement of the Romantic Symphony. But it's different. The notes are different. They're arrayed differently. The figures are different. Oh, yeah, it's not a plagiarism. But yes, you can't deny that he's borrowing a trick from the Hanson. Well, I'm saying almost beyond that, someone with the obvious facility of John Williams, if the intention was just, you know, do some exciting bike riding music, if his intention was to steer away from this piece, he could have steered away from it. I have no doubt that he could have. And especially to me, the kind of giveaway that he wanted to acknowledge what he was doing here is this figure. I mean, 
John Williams has written a thousand propulsive brass figures in his time. In this movie, he uses this one. Here it is in the Hansen piece. It sort of serves an important function in the third movement of the piece. So people have speculated that this is sort of deliberate homage. Uh, it's a footnote. Yeah, that's how it reads to me. If you've heard the Howard Hansen Symphony and then you listen to the last few cues from E.T., there is a sense that he stayed close to the temp deliberately mm -hmm. with self-knowledge that that's what was going on. Because, you know, that quote that I found, which was kind of interesting, he says that they used some Shostakovich for the opening chase. That's the music that you were talking about to your car playing earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine any number of Shostakovich pieces that are, yeah, kind of propulsive and energetic and scary like this. This is Shostakovich's 10th symphony. I have no idea if they cut to this, but it seems plausible. The point is that John Williams is not imitating this or any other piece of Shostakovich's that I'm aware of. And then this one's really interesting. He says, we use some of the soundtrack from Hal Ashby's Being There by Johnny Mandel. I looked into what this is. There's a couple of piano pieces in Being There that are Johnny Mandel doing kind of a take on the Satie piano pieces that everyone knows. Goodbye, Chance. So here, I think, is the piano piece he must mean. Bye, Louise. It's not the actual settee, but it's a reference to it. You know, we're three layers deep here. Anyway, I'm pretty sure that what this must have been used for is the sequences we've been talking about, the E.T. and Elliot sequences, because it's this delicate solo music with kind of a dreamy vibe to it. But the thing that John Williams wrote in no way hues close enough to it for you to see that model underneath it. Right. And so I think just in the final sequence of this movie, there is a deliberate hewing close to his model. The most striking alignment, I think, is the very end where uh, E.T.'s going on the ship and the doors close, the ship takes off and it goes up into space. matches the contour of the final moments of the symphony pretty directly. Yes, sometimes you diverge from what the temp is doing, and sometimes you don't. It's very interesting to consider that in this case, we get this little window into what his process was. He was working off of this example that had been given to him. But listen, I want to say, I like the Williams music better than the Hanson. I think it's, uh, boy, this is something, right? Yeah, well, even when Williams borrows pretty directly from the Hanson, the function of what he borrows changes. Like, here's a passage from the Hansen Symphony that ends up pretty recognizably in E.T. Mm -hmm. 
For Hanson, that is the tune. That's his melodic material. When Williams uses it, it's basically connective tissue to get from one to another of his tunes that there's no counterpart to at all in the Hanson and that are, you know, the soul of this movie. This finale is really a masterful summation of everything that has come before. Right. You hear the keys theme, you hear the flying theme, you hear almost every theme. And the moment at the end here where the love theme re-emerges is sort of goosebumpy because pretty much every other time we've heard this fifth that goes from the three to the seven instead of from the one to the five in the scale, it's been a standalone cue just devoted to that material. And here we're in this other harmonic space and then it rises out of that. And it, yeah, kind of gives you chills. It's like, here's the intimate music on a horn now and filling out this orchestral space. It's just like it's an effect in classical music where a theme gets, uh, it transcends its old station and becomes something... Yeah, it's gorgeous. Grand. It's, it's just gorgeous. Gorgeous, yeah. So as long as we're talking about things in pre-existing classical music that the E.T. score may or may not sound like, I guess we have to mention the piano trio by Antonin Dvorak, which is known as the Dumki Trio. And in the ending of the final movement of that piece, there is a, I think it's played on the cello, a melody which hasn't been a main part of the piece. I think this is the first time it shows up in the piece right at the very end. But boy, it sounds exactly like the E.T. melody. It's sort of jaw-droppingly similar. In fact, my jaw literally dropped when I first heard it. That moment came when, for a little while, I was employed as a professional page turner at a chamber music concert series Mm -hmm. where I would sit on the stage behind the pianist and read the music over his shoulder and stand up and turn the pages for him as he was playing. And this happened, they were playing the Dumki Piano Trio. jaw dropped when they played that and I was reading along in the score as they were playing. I don't know exactly what to make of this. I really do believe it's coincidental, but I don't think it matters at all. It's definitely the same melody for a certain stretch of notes, but I think Williams is entitled to it because he shows his work. You know, all of these family of themes that we've spoken about, they all sort of evolve from one to the next, as I was saying before. And they're part of this constellation of things that fit together and tell this story. And he sort of derives it in front of your eyes. I think he's entitled to it because he shows how he gets to it over the course of the score. That's one of those things where I feel like my gut tells me it's absolutely a coincidence. Mm -hmm. And the only reason people even note it is because the E.T. theme was such a huge hit, phenomenal hit that... People take the time to note things that sound like it. Right. Yeah. You know, there's not that many notes, you know, (laughs) things are going to sound like other things. Especially if it's just a melody that, you know, is the notes of the major scale played in the standard intervals. Like, yeah, of course. The key reason that to me it seems unrelated is that the identity of the E.T. flying theme to my ear is tied up in the fact that it's in 3-2 time, Hmm. that it's in a slow three. And the Dvorak, I believe, is not. Right? Yeah. The rhythm is different. The rhythm is different. It's just in two. One, two. One, two. 
I think the rhythm is so crucial. The idea that this lift, this flying feeling, comes from the hovering three. You know, it's not da 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 da. It's da 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 da. da. This expansive threeness of it. You were talking in the previous episode about how three is kind of a flowing mm-hmm. water nature, water you were talking about then. But that was for a score that's all in three. This is a movie where we haven't been in three. And then when they take off, it's like there's some extra. The first two are familiar and then the third one is extra. Maybe I should have thought of some better words for describing <laughs> this. But I just think that that it's in three is what makes that theme. So something else that happens to go up a fifth and then you know, down again, to me, it's just, we're not even in the same territory. No, no, I agree. It probably is a coincidence. And in any case, so what? You know, like you said way back in the On the Waterfront episode, that this sounds like Copeland. And then also there's a Jerry Goldsmith score that sounds like the On the Waterfront theme. And you said, I don't care when music sounds like other music. It's fine. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I told you we were going to talk about the Hanson and you were like, oh, I don't know if we need to go there because it plays into this thing that people like to do with John Williams. Yeah. And like, oh, I found where he stole it from. Yeah, I hate that so much. I hate it exactly because the premise of it is wrong to begin with. If he stole it from there, then he did that creative act. And if he just happened to come close to it, that was a creative act. And like in any case, no one else wrote the score to E.T. Yeah, it seems like some sort of perverse conspiracy theory instinct that some people have to say, ah, he took it from here. I do think it's interesting to hear where things come from, to hear that things are connected to each other. Oh, it is. I just don't think that one thing coming from another is in any way disreputable phenomenon. It's just how art functions. And it's how movies function you know again soundtrack scores we're very comfortable with movies that just outright use other pieces of music sure because we know that you make new meaning for music by the associations you know Mm -hmm. people have personal associations you make your own mixtape and suddenly each of those songs has a new meaning you put it in a movie and it has a new meaning and so then to not even put it in a movie but to transmogrify it and not even take it just be inspired by it there's nothing to be skeptical about at all for me here here okay good let's close the matter yeah okay If you like the world of E.T., go ahead, check out Howard Hansen. He wrote a bunch of nice pieces. Sure. (laughs) Credit where credit's due. Back in the Pink Panther episode, I made a snide comment about the dinner table that they were sitting around, how it was a ridiculously small (laughs) dinner table. Of all the things you were going to call back to, (laughs) I never would have guessed. Yeah, well, I just, I felt like if I'm going to be on record criticizing the shapes of dinner tables, I should be on record here as saying that they have this triangular dinner table in Elliot's house that I thought was pretty cool. I thought it was pretty cool that it was shaped like a triangle and, you know, like the mother and Gertie are sitting along the hypotenuse and the other kids are sitting along the other side of the triangle. I like that. So, uh... You know, John, did you notice that they go on? They're like, oh, the coyote's back. We got to watch out for the coyote. Yeah. And then they just go into the house and leave a pizza just sitting on their lawn. <laughs> I did not. 
<laughs> Anytime a pizza goes to waste, I'm sad. Yeah, they're like, well, how could you order this pizza? Oh, you ruined the pizza, pizza, pizza. And then they just walk away and leave the pizza there. Yeah. Bizarre. Do you think that when Michael says the coyote's back, do you think that is a reference to the, to the coyote who's in the cast? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the name of keys, the name of the actor is Peter Coyote. Uh, look, I'm sorry. I've been doing so much shtick with these keys. It's stuck out to me this time. It's just, uh, yes, okay, he's keys. He's got keys. He has keys. There's keys. Anyway, I think we should try to wrap it up soon. But uh, are there any other moments in this score you want to talk about? Yeah. I want to call out the passage that leads up to the flying scene, which is actually part of the Halloween sequence. I want to talk about the way that he gets from one to the other. He scores the Halloween sequence with this kind of quirky, you know, the grotesque bizarrery of it. And then he does this kind of on-the-nose joke about Yoda, which is exactly what's called for, don't you think? Yeah, we got to talk about that. Let's give that a little bit more. You know, as everyone remembers, E.T. sees someone dressed as Yoda and says, home, home. (laughs) And John Williams goes along with the joke and plays his tune from The Empire Strikes Back that corresponds to Yoda. Yeah, he quotes his own theme that he wrote two years earlier. Which is exactly the musical equivalent of the self-indulgence that Spielberg's little nod to his friend George there. It's a kind of like, we're all going to be inside about this. I mean, this is the second nod to Star Wars. First, he introduces him to Greedo and Lando Calrissian. Sure, but listen, I mean, it's fair enough. You know, every 10-year-old kid in 1982 had Star Wars toys. You know, it's totally real. Oh, yeah, it is totally real. And yes, and someone totally would have been dressed as Yoda in Halloween 1982. Right. But anyway, Williams quotes himself with a kind of winking accompaniment. Right. I always love that so much. Yeah, it gets to be right on the nose because that's what the joke is. It has a good humor to it. It also gets to be right on the nose because, you know, again, as we observed before, the musical material is already kind of similar. The Yoda theme is sort of playing around the same notes as the E.T. theme. Well, so that's what I was going to say. He then, for the next... There's some time transition. Now it's dusk and they're making plans for where they're going to go. E.T. is going to go and set up the machine and Elliot's going to go with him and they have to meet him later. Over this, he is now developing the Yoda motif that only entered as a joke in the first place. Did you notice that? Oh, maybe I didn't actually. He uses that da-da-da-da figure a bunch of times in sequence. Well, come on, help me. We'll be waiting for you. Oh, yeah. It's just sort of a way classical musical development might take place, but he's running with that material. No longer corresponds to Yoda. And then he rather quickly gets to the money moment in this movie when he takes off and flies over the moon and he gets there. He ramps up to it before we play what he does. If you think about the task there to get from this joke about Yoda to everyone feeling exultation as he flies in a matter of, I don't know what it is, 20 seconds or something. Like, how are we going to do that musically? There's this beautiful passage where he brings in a piano solo as though it's like a concerto. It sort of sounds like a Rachmaninoff or something. It's just sort of twiddling around, but just as soon as it enters, it to me lights up like, oh, we're in a piece of classical music, and it's allowed to be bold and kind of assert things on a romantic scale, soar off into this grander emotional sphere. To me, it's brilliant. It's satisfying to listen to, but it's also a brilliant solution to a kind of 
quick change trick that he has to pull. I'm basically just enthusing on it. I just think this is so wonderfully done. Yeah, what else can you say about this stuff but to say how great it is? Listen. People just don't have the guts to score like this anymore. Yeah. Because you really have to just commit. Yeah, and you have to trust that the audience will go with you there. He's jumping with both feet into where he's going. But man, he nails the landing. He absolutely nails the landing in a way that... Honestly, I wish people would fail at that sometimes Uh just so we could hear people trying more. Just talking about temp tracks, I want to give the editor credit for temping with such a lush, Mm -hmm. you know, he calls it the romantic symphony, like going so deep into the romantic sound. Hmm. That is just sort of seen as risky these days. And even then, this was a rare movie. I think it was such a splash because there are few movies that live inside this emotional space. There's a lot of classical music that lives inside it. There's other kinds of art, but movies don't want to take that leap very often. Mm -hmm. I wrote here in my notes as I was watching along, I wrote, what can I say? This is beautiful. And then, no, but really, what can I say? I have to talk about this. (laughs) I wasn't even sure what I could add to the conversation about well, this is just gorgeous stuff, man. But let me just quickly call out another little moment that I think is on the other end of the spectrum from this really grand, daring, romantic sound. And this is a moment that I was so struck with the economy of what he was able to get across. It's the scene where Elliot's mother, Mary, hears something and goes back up the stairs and <laughs> looks in the closet and E.T. is hiding in plain sight among all the stuffed animals and she doesn't see him. There's just this one high string note that's held over the moment. It's this moment of tension as she's looking across the animals. And then after she doesn't see him, after E.T.'s little play here works, there's just these two chords that are so expressive. They're a complete sentence. They're so well chosen. They tell you exactly. Oh, she didn't see him. She thinks there's nothing there. Phew. So well calculated. The notes, the orchestration, the instrumentation, just remarkable economy of expression to juxtapose with the, what's the opposite of economy of expression? Outsized expression that he does elsewhere all through the movie. He's got it all, man. Right. He's got the fine bristle brushes and the- And the paint roller. And the roller, yeah. Yeah. So Andy, you know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like this might be your favorite score that we've done so far. It is. It is. And I think this is the one to beat going forward. Yeah. It is not solely because of how much I like this music and because of how good John Williams is at his job, but it's also because this movie is distinctly a movie about having a score. Yeah. It is a movie that has a score, and that's part of the point of the movie it outranks a bunch of other stuff that could go on such a list just at the outset. Yeah, because of how much work it's doing, because of how much weight it's lifting. And you're definitely right that Spielberg knew that he had the champion weightlifter ready to go to do that for his movie, so he gave him room to do it. Yeah, the music is doing so much work to make this feel everything that it feels. You know, everybody that I spoke to that I said, I got to watch E.T., you want to watch that movie with me? Everybody said, oh, that movie makes me cry. I don't want to cry. There's so much to it, and it's so much because of the music. It's got the transcendence, you know, the transcendence of transcendence. So, yeah, I think it's pretty easy for both of us to put this on the top of our list so far. Yeah. 
because it's an equation of the movie with the music. It's not just a movie that has music lifting it up to the heights it's at. It's a movie that means what the music means. Yeah. There are so many movies that imitated this afterward. There are so many bad 80s movies Uh that wanted to capture some of the E.T. magic. And they tried to make it be about the same themes. And they tried to have, you know, kids go on adventures. And some of them succeeded to some degree. But it's not like stories about childhood hadn't been told before. What hadn't been done before and hasn't really been done since in quite as durable a way is making a story about childhood be this world of high romantic musical emotion Mm -hmm. and just saying this equals this and the meaning of this story about a kid with a alien in his bedroom is a full orchestra exulting Mm -hmm. that's the only meaning that this movie has if you take either of them out you're looking at some other disappointing creature so yeah there are very few movies that are built that way Yeah, this stands alone. This stands the test of time. And it was just a treat to get to watch it and think about it again. Hey, did you know that this is John Williams playing that piano solo? I did not know that. But I was going to ask you, actually, do you know when we have heard John Williams previously in the scores that we've talked about? Uh, He played piano in various scores. I know he played with Mancini a while. Did he play on the Pink Panther soundtrack? I don't know if he did. But yeah, he came up as a studio pianist. Yeah, Johnny Williams. Johnny Williams. For example, you mentioned Mancini. It is John Williams' left hand that is going dum bum bottom 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 for the Peter Gunn theme. Did you know that one? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. That's the famous one. But I heard that it is, in fact, John Williams playing the piano in To Kill a Mockingbird. Really? He plays the piano on the To Kill a Mockingbird score. I see in two different places here online. So he had that feel in his fingers, literally. How about that? That's a connection. It is a connection. I mean, I wouldn't say that this movie is paying any specific homage to it, but it's such a direct precursor to what's being done here. And E.T. would not sound like this if To Kill a Mockingbird hadn't sounded like that. It seems clear to me. Definitely. So how about that for the connection between them? Yeah, that is cool. I didn't know about that one. Okay, so next time. Next time we go in the Wayback Machine. We go all the way back to 1933 and Max Steiner's score for the original King Kong. Awesome awesome yeah i'm looking forward to that sure that'll be a totally different flavor this is a great jump back sure also it's got a huge gorilla in it you know what happens in that movie right there's a huge gorilla uh, let's not spoil it yet it's like bigger okay just picture a normal gorilla I, okay now multiply it by like 50 oh like 50 gorillas yeah just stack them up yeah it is going to be really cool to go all the way back to towards the beginning of film music itself uh now we got to stop Oh, yeah. If you like the show, uh, keep liking the show. You know, demonstrate that you like the show. (laughs) Why don't you do something for us for a change? You never call. (laughs) There might be some new listeners who tuned in this time because they love E.T. and they saw this on the list and said, hey, I'll start with E.T. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't ask too much of those people, but I hope you enjoyed it and go back and hear the other ones. Uh, So, yeah, listen, leave us a review on iTunes. Tweet at us at Score Settlers. Anything else, Andy? Where can listeners see you? You have any appearances coming up? You got anything to plug? <laughs> I hope that listeners can't see me. <laughs> if listeners want to plug something for us, go ahead, plug at us <laughs> at Score Settlers. All right. 
Well, I think we had a real good time listening to film music for this episode. And uh, <laughs> we're going to listen to some more film music. For sure. See you there. All right. All right.